Oh, good to see you. I'm Scott Farber, along with this good-looking young man that is a Memphis living legend, <laughs> former NFL New York Giants, soon to be in the Guinness Book of World Records. That's we'll, what we're hoping for. We'll, we'll talk about that later. NFL uh, Players Association president of the Dallas-Fort Worth chapter and host of The Extra Point, starring Larry Mallory. And my good friend, he is... Larry Mallory. That's right. Hey, Good man. Good to see you, Scott. Good to see you. Yeah, 2018 season. Good to see you. You, you know, and, and what, what a wild week we've been having. And But we're going to try to talk a little football today. <laughs> Let's hope so. But first, you know, a little business today. Later in the show, we're going to have a gentleman by the name of Paul Hendricks join us. Paul is a uh, Vietnam veteran, and he uh, wants to tell us about of the, uh, this organization he's a part of, uh, Veterans Center of North Texas. And what they do for Vietnam vets and all veterans, and I know that you are, you know, always having your chapter do thing with veterans. So we're gonna, you know, bring him on and let him talk to us today, and he might have some insight uh, what John McCain went through. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting because um, my wife said something that I found fascinating. They were talking about John McCain and the Hanoi Hilton. Yeah. Our kids' generation. When they hear that, they probably think John McCain was in the Hilton. That's right. In Vietnam. They don't understand that this was not the luxury hotel and this was the name that the guys gave it, you know. And we lost a remarkable man, Senator John McCain, uh, to a terrible disease. As we all know, cancer is just a hideous disease, as a good friend of mine once said. What what were your thoughts of uh, John McCain? Who just, I mean, so, so many. my mother, my 90-year-old mother actually wrote a, um, a little document that she's been trying to give McCain as to how much of a positive influence he was on her uh, when, when he stood up for his competitor in the presidential race. Obama. Obama, uh-huh. yeah. I got to ask you a question. I do not uh, believe in, I can't trust Obama. I, I, I have read about him, and he's not, he's not, he's a, um, he's an Arab. He is not. No, man. no, no, man, no, man. He's a, he's a, he's a decent family man, citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with, on on fundamental issues, and that's what this campaign is all about. He's not. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you know what I what I didn't understand. I know you know he was beaten and tortured every day, and and survived. Mm-hmm. But my question is. They were going to release him, and he refused it to keep taking the torture until all the men before him were going to be released, mm-hmm. which, you know, says volumes about him. But my question is, when they found out his father was a high-ranking official, so why would Vietnam be willing to let him go then? I, I, I don't, I didn't, I never understood that. Why was it okay to release him because his father was high up? Well, now, obviously, I don't know the specifics, but what I have heard from some of the newscasts was that they wanted to use him from a propaganda perspective. Oh, I got gotcha. you. They had one of gotcha. high-level rankings, so there was probably some negotiating yeah, ploy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I'll tell you, something just hit me in terms of you, you asking that question. I, you know, I lived outside the country for a long time. Right. And, and everywhere I lived, and this was in the 80s and 90s, in right, the early right. 2000s, everywhere I lived, there was an honor. When I moved to a foreign country, I was looked upon honorably. Right. You know, it was like, and that's what John McCain's 
idealism was. It was like he represented the, a part of America that everyone desired to come to, uh, wanted to be like, wanted to mimic, and, and, and it was a degree of not necessarily bar, bar, bipartisanship or bipartisan or anything like that. It was, it was a fair and equal opportunity for someone to, to get up in life. And, and so, I'm, you know, when I lived outside of the country, honestly, John McCain's personality and his ideals was basically what I experienced. Right, right, Because right. people thought so highly of our country. Well, you know, they called him the maverick. And that was because he was willing to work with the other side. Yeah. You know, he said what he felt was the right thing to do. He didn't have to always follow party lines. It's a little bit different right now. No, it is. It, it is. It, you know, it's... Uh, I tribute to John, though. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he was a wonderful man. Exactly. He was a great man. You know, and then he died on the 25th of August. Ted Kennedy died on the 25th of August, yeah. nine years earlier. Yeah. They both died from the same form of brain cancer. And that's a how, it was, just, was, it, what, was it the multiple myeloma, I think, because I've heard of that before. Well, it's got some name that Something I don't even want to try to pronounce. <laughs> right. You know, but, but it's just two guys that fought tooth and nail over policy. They were probably good friends, yeah. you know, when the cameras weren't rolling and they were arguing. And then to die in the same day and, and of the same hideous disease, there's something prophetic about that. I just Is, is there anyone to take up that mantle? Pardon me now? Is there anyone in the Senate that can take up the type of mantle that... Well, everybody in the Senate claims they, they could, but I don't know. He was, he was really one of a kind. Yeah, he really was. You, you know, and when you see his injuries, you know, like when you talk about his arms and you read about how his plane was shot down and underwater, he, he broke both his arms and, and uh, his rib cage, and he was able to free himself with his teeth. And then was immediately beaten, and it's just awful. Um, I mean, and in and, 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 and all of his speeches, you know, they've done all these clips and stuff on him. He yeah. always reflects that, too. Yeah, yeah. The, and I did not realize that his, his mother is 106. Yeah, you know, that cancer got him early. You know, he was only 81, going to be 82 uh -huh. uh, soon. But uh, his genes were he was going to be around a while. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. That's right. So his mom is still alive now. That's what, you know, that's what I deduced from hearing it this morning, that his mom had lost her child. She was 106 years old. Got to figure out a way to taper for the website. That's a good point. You know, got to taper, got to taper. And then you were talking about your mom at 90 years old. And you think of people at that age, all they've seen. You know, and for her to want to write a letter of thank you to John McCain is amazing. Yeah. You know, when you were telling me about it before we started the broadcast, <clears throat> it reminded me of a lady I had interviewed for the website years ago. And she told the story how when she first moved to this area, they tried to buy a home, I guess, in McKinney or Garland, one of the suburbs of Dallas, and they were turned down. So she wrote a letter to her congressman, LBJ. <laughs> she said we, he wrote a letter back and said, you've been approved to buy your home. And she goes, and that's how we bought our first home. She goes, I wrote a letter to my congressman, and LBJ took care of it for us. <laughs> I mean, you know, it just but see, Scott, that, that generation, though, they have a way of reaching out to people and make things happen. That's what makes the generations broadcast center so special. Honestly, that's what attracted. That's what attracts everybody to it. When you capture the everyone just has like a story. Said, everyone has a story. Yeah. And when when GBC captures these stories and are able to 
to, um, to, to chronicle them right, for right. youth. That is what we're attempting to do right. for our children now. We're trying to get them off the phones. Right, right. right and at least right. share some of the history of right. how you got to where you are. And that's what right. GBC does. Right, right. And we're finding that um, uh, the older you get, the more interested you get. Yeah. You, you, know, you know, the more interesting, you know, even your backgrounds, you know, where you came from and, and that type of history is a little bit more interesting. All right, well, let's move on to some football for a while. Let's leave the world of politics for a while, but, but God bless John McCain. He was one of a kind, man. All right, how many games is Cleveland going to win this year? Uh, well, they're going to start, you know, there was such an interesting uh, conversation about the Cleveland quarterback uh, over the weekend. I don't know if you saw it, where uh, Coach Dungy said, oh, I think Baker Mayfield ought to go in and play and play, and, and uh, the defensive back, I forgot his name, he said, now, come on, Coach. Now, Tyrod Taylor has done a really, really pretty good job. He deserves to start the season. I think Tyrod is a leader. I think he's coming off of a team where he's accustomed to being a leader. I think it's a good place for Baker Mayfield to be, coming out of college, having somewhat of a, of a college perspective coming out. You know, he's a little aggressive in college and coming into the professional ranks. He at least gets a chance to come behind a veteran, and you can see how that works very well for Carson Wentz, who just won the, won the Super Bowl last year. Right, right. Folks kicked in and came in and helped him out. So I think it's a good position for Mayfield to be right now. And I think that Tyrod will uh, be a good leader on that team. They're going to win some games. Okay, some. But you're not going to give me a number. No, though. No. You know, there's a lot of a parody as I've been watching this preseason. However... And, and I'm not sure if this is correct or not, but I think this is one of the first preseasons where the starters have played less than I've ever seen before. I, I think that's just because of injuries. Uh, you're right. You know, you're exactly right. Because it, uh, you, you know, there's just been too many season-ending injuries to guys. And a couple of guys have gotten hurt. Uh, I forgot who it was, tore an ACL right. and is out for the year now. That's right. You, you know, uh, that mean, gets to that argument, should there even be a preseason in the NFL? That's a good point. That's you a know. good point. And, and it also, you know, it, it, it gets to a conversation that we're going to have uh, today, which I don't know if you're familiar with. There's actually a new league being planned called the Alliance League. But we'll talk more about that. Because i got to get it all together. you got to get it figured <laughs> yeah, out first. Right. All right, so we heard it here first. That's right, the Alliance, you, you know, the Alliance League. Well, you know, you know um, but let me ask you, what did you guys think of uh, the preseason games? You know, the way me as a non-player, the way I perceive it is part of the television deal for them to recoup some of their money that they give to the NFL for the rights to broadcast the games is they're able to sell advertising in the preseason. Not for as much money, obviously, but it's probably very profitable. Yeah, <clears throat> That's number one. Number two, the owners are filling the seats because when you buy your season ticket, you also have to buy your preseason games. Right. So it comes down to money at the player's expense. So when you were playing in a preseason game, were you thrilled to be playing in it? Well, uh, that's a great, the way that you... You, you phrase that and position that as excellent because it talks about pre-1993 and post-1993. You love that year. Yeah. Pre-1993, preseason was the way you made the team. Right. Right. Your starters, just like we just spoke about, played a lot more in those preseasons than they do now. Right. Nowadays, the preseason is really, just as you very, very rightly explained, you're seeing starting offenses go against second-team defenses. 
starting defenses go against second team offenses. Right. So the actual state of the of the team is not being reflected anymore. And especially based upon, I think, so much social media and all these equipments. Right, right. You, anybody can take a picture if you're practicing and doing things nowadays. You can right. see where I'm going. Yeah, yeah. It's, and I would think in practice now they're so advanced that you know who's going to make the team just by going to practice. Right. But they don't, they, they don't want – they're trying to keep that coveted right. because of the scouting reports and because of the team competition, right. the league competitions. You're not seeing – give me a perfect example. The Cowboys just played last night. Right. What, did, did you see their second teams? Well, I, I saw the score. It was 17 nothing. Yeah, I saw the scores. Yeah. You know, I didn't watch the game. It's like, it's like it, what it's revealing is how your depth is. Right, that, right. That's what preseasons are revealing. Not the starters. and they, You know, they're holding them out. Right. But it's revealing your depth. And I think our analysis of the preseason is going to, and, you know, we always talk about the overriding consistent module for NFL sports is injury. Right, right. So if you have a deep team, then you have much more of a chance of getting through that 16-game season, and I yeah. think that's what preseason is showing now. Yeah, They're yeah. are getting yeah. That, that second team, this replacement guys ready, you know, and then they're, they're really doing a, a strong job on the starters in practice. So if you were in control, would there be preseason games? Uh, yes, it would be. And it would be because... Uh, I would be on the capitalistic side of right, 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 <laughs> things. Right. And I would want to make, you know, because the coaches get paid. And well, do the players want preseason games? I was about to ask that question. I don't know. I can't re- See, in our day, players got a certain amount in the preseason. Right, right. But now I think that that has been adjusted for the CBA, and I don't know the exact answer yeah, to yeah. the adjustment in preseason. See, I, I just think it's it's a real tough time. You know, because uh, the players go out there and they want to play and they want to perform. And if they and if you don't give it your all, you could get hurt. Yeah. You know, so they're out there giving their all. But at the end of the day, I just don't know how important those games are. You know, in college, they don't have a preseason. Mm-hmm. But the stacked big name teams seem to try to play a lesser team at the beginning of the year. Right. Right. You know, You know, but that lesser team is playing a giant team, and their incentive is if I could knock off the giant, Appalachian State in Michigan or something a couple of years ago, it changes the whole landscape of that college too. Prairie View and Rice this past weekend. Yeah, yeah. Rice had to beat Prairie View on the last second field goal. So. Right, right, <laughs> right. But, but, that's, but that's what I'm saying though. So, you know, I could see where in college it seems to be working, but all those games count. Mm-hmm. See, the preseason, I'm just a little leery of it. You know, as a fan, I'm a little, you know, I don't want my guys to get hurt. The, the Bears, okay, we know I'm a Bear fan, but the Bears had a play in the Hall of Fame game. Mm-hmm. So that means they're playing five preseason games. You know, the Bears aren't done. They have to play one more game. If one guy gets injured now, and then I go, okay, that's five games, and then 16 it's a long year. It's a long season. It is a long season. You know. and, and, it, and that speaks to depth. I yeah. think you got to have some yeah. depth because yeah. you're not going to get through a 16-game season without any injuries. And in our day, if you did, they call you out. They say you're not hitting. Right, right, <laughs> so, right, right. So now that you're going to be injured. So the deeper the team, the better. And I didn't, you know, the Cowboys didn't show a lot of depth the other day. All right. Well, you didn't tell me uh, how many games Cleveland will win exactly, but maybe you'll give me this answer. And I know you already kind of talked about it, but I'm not taking it. What game will Baker Mayfield be named the starter? 
I'm convinced he's going to be starting this year. I, I think he'll probably uh, start this year uh, if if they get up to three losses or so. You know, I, I, when you say get up to three losses, that means without any wins. Without any wins. Okay. Yeah, I think that. So by if, week four. Yeah, if Tyrod Taylor gets them off to a good start, then then the locker room is going to jail behind right. Tyrod Taylor. But Tyrod Taylor as a leader. He's going to he's going to keep Baker Mayfield in the mix. Just one of the reasons what you just said: sixteen games, yeah. no injuries. Yeah. You got to be ready to step in, yeah. Baker, when it's time, and it will be time. Yeah. You know, I remember when quarterbacks like Terry Bradshaw, I think, sat on the bench how many years? Five years, six years. You know, they sat on the bench to groom them, but now it seems like guys are put in the starting role immediately. That's true. That's you, true. you know, is that because teams that do that are desperate? Or is it just the way the game has evolved? I mean, Aaron Rodgers sat on the bench. Of course, he was behind Brett Favre. But he sat four or five years, you know, on the bench before he got to play. Uh, uh, turned out okay for him. Um, Steve Young sat on the bench. Of course, he was behind Montana. So, you know, he, he wasn't going anywhere. But he had a pretty good Hall of Fame career, too. So those are easier to understand, you know, um, so what is the real thinking in the NFL now? I mean, some of these guys go in immediately. It's just because they necessity or because there is a thinking that maybe we could start them sooner. Well, I think, I think all, all of the things you said, plus uh, there's an evolution in the sport. You know, uh, give me a perfect example. Eli Manning is still a drop-back quarterback. When you're right. defensive lineman like Randy Gregory and – the DeMaris Lawrence, these boys with the Cowboys are very athletic. They know where he is because he's going to be standing in the same place. Right there, the yeah, yeah. And so we're also looking at the evolution of the game and the evolution of quarterbacks. Right, you right, You've got to right. be able to move nowadays because your defensive linemen are actually, uh, um, should be NBA forwards or right, NBA right, centers. Right, you right. Know? So, so everything you said is true. I think it's also the evolution of the game, and it's the fact that you have to be able to move now. The other thing I think I'd add to that, though, is if you were the owner and you gave me the kind of money that they're having to give these kids now based on the CBA, you'd be ready for me to play. <laughs> you know right, I mean? right, you don't right, want right. to see me sitting on a bench and you're right, paying right. me $2 million a day. You know? Right, right. Well, you know, yeah, see, that's the other thing, too. You know, uh, um, uh, I know rookie contracts aren't what they're going to get when they get the big bucks, but it's a lot of money on the table now. Well, especially for a first rounder now. Right. You know, well, what was, is what does the number one pick get? Oh, he, uh, I, I can't, I don't know how many zeros it is because it has so many pieces. You know, right, right. Contract here and an endorsement here, and a, they probably make more money with Burger King than they do with the team. Well, ask Tiger Woods. Exactly. You, you know, know. Yeah. But in Brett Favre's and those guys' days, you know, it, it yeah. was not those, those kinds of contracts. Yeah, yeah. Well, Sam Darnold now, great at USC, on the New York Jets. There's always the superstar and there's always the bust. Mm. What's what? Where does Sam fit in? What's he going to become? Oh, he's with the Jets, right? Yeah. Sometimes it's the team too that it helps is. make the uh, <laughs> makes your uh, career. It is. You know, Sam fortunately has been is now in the National Football League. Unfortunately, he has to look at uh, numbers from one of the best. <laughs> 
Joe Namath, one of the best stars in the history of the league. Right, right. And he's in New York, which you know how tough Oh, yeah, tough it's, it's tough, yeah. I might, might be the second toughest to the Bears, to yeah. Chicago. I uh, know. I think being in New York <laughs> is by far in any sport. It's tough. The, yeah, yeah, tough. Um, yeah. But uh, all in all, I think that uh, he's these college guys are coming out a little uh, kind of prepared from a quarterback standpoint. Pretty prepared. You know, you get a lot of you got a lot of pro coaches in college. The college system is very now more aligned to the NFL system. In fact, it is my perspective that the college system now is primarily the major four conferences. Right. The HBCUs now have become free agent pools. Right, right. Okay, Grambling, Tennessee State, right. and uh, which is a tremendous free agent pool. And, and now there is a consideration for a league called the Alliance League where they're going to have like a feed league to the NFL. Can you just so, tell me who's behind that or not well, I'm yet? Not, I'm, I'm not sure. When, when's, your, when's your meeting today? <laughs> the, well, my meeting's at the end of the month. Oh, okay. But I was informed that I got this information through our system that you got guys like um, some high-profile Hall of Famers that are coaches. Right. Uh, in fact, it is my understanding maybe even there might be some teams in Memphis and in Alabama. Some of the places, what, what drew me to it, I happened to, to be in an area where I was viewing this, and what drew my attention was, you know, I played in the World Football League where Larry Zonka, Jim Kick, and Paul Warfield left the NFL to come to. Right. And as I looked over and I saw the scroll cities that they were talking about, a lot of the cities were the cities that the OWFL had been a part of. So that's what drew Interesting. Yeah. You know, you know, you said something the other day. I'm always intrigued by uh, where you went to school. Memphis State. Tennessee State. I mean, Tennessee State. Uh-huh. You're just a living legend in Memphis. <laughs> but you went to Tennessee State. And I remember when you showed me your high school baseball uh, basketball picture, and there were 12 guys there. And you said, oh, nine of us went to the pros. You know, a couple in the NFL and a couple in, you know, in the NBA. And I'm sitting there going, there's 12 guys, and nine of them went to the pros. Well, the other day, we're getting ready to, to tape the first show of the season mm-hmm. for the Extra Point, which is now up on uh, the website and the YouTube channel. And you were just in conversation saying how, because I was talking about all the great athletes that were, you know, you went to school with. Ed Tutal Jones, Wayman Bryant, you know. Joe Gilliam. Joe Gilliam. You know, there's a long list. And then you looked at me and goes, yeah, my uh, junior year, there were 24 seniors and 23 went to the NFL. And then my senior year, there were 23 seniors and 22 went to the NFL. True. How the hell has that happened? I mean, I mean, really, think of it. You're not talking about the big-time Ohio State or Oklahoma, where now you know one or two guys get picked from all these big schools. I don't know what it was like when you know back in, in our day in the 70s for those schools either. I think three or four went, and it was a big deal. How did you guys not go on, burst onto the national scene, at least in the story that everybody who goes there goes to the pros. And why wasn't the coaching staff all named head coaches in the NFL next Tuesday? Well, boy, you open up a lot of boxes in. On the last part, they just did a study to show, you know, they were talking about how many African-American athletes are in the NFL. Right. And the average, I think the lowest, no, no, how many African-American athletes are at major colleges. Okay. The lowest salary was three million dollars. Right. Uh, Saban made eleven million. 
when they looked at the cop Africa, uh, HBCUs, the highest salary was 250000 And then they made a comparison to all those athletes being sent to the pros where those coaches are making X amount. So, so back to the question, you're right. During that era, um, there was not a lot of um, invitations to the major Big Ten, Big Eight colleges uh, that that there that there is for those kids for those kids when they were in high school. Okay, right. your your primary path in terms of sports was uh, was HBCUs. Unless you're an All American or you're the top guy, OJ Simpson went to Syracuse. I think that kind of stuff. But was Tennessee State all local guys? They were taking guys just from the area. No, they took guys primarily from all the way down to Texas. The coaching staff was uh, Joe Gilliam, the quarterback of Pittsburgh Steelers. His father was the basically the catalyst. Right. We had a head coach called John Merritt that was um, somewhat of a um, he was like. He was not a coach. He was a businessman. He was the one. I think I told you he would have us when we had our investors come out on the field. He would make sure that we would wear our most raggedy <laughs> jerseys and stuff. And he would call you over so we could get new equipment. <laughs> so his thing was. Very smart. Yeah. We would put on our old shoes so we could get more shoes because we didn't have enough weights. We didn't have enough anything. And, you know, we just kind of made do. And he would invite Investors and our primary investors were the guys from the Country Music Hall of Fame, Grand Ole Opry. Unbelievable. Yeah, but we had so we had so many players. They drafted. They came out of Jackson, Mississippi, in the high school system, and then they they uh, worked. I think at at either Alcorn or one of the colleges down there. But when they all came together at Tennessee State, they recruited throughout the South and the Southwest, from Florida to Texas, all the way to Kentucky. So I mean, you guys, were, but you guys were recruiting just like Texas was recruiting, or Oklahoma was recruiting, or Ohio State was recruiting, That's true. and they're getting all the national attention, and their stars are winning the Heisman trophies, and their stars are going on to the NFL, and you guys are quietly sending everybody to the NFL. I think the major thing that you got a good point. I think the major thing was that every one of those coaches came to your house sit down with your parents and told them that you were going to graduate first. See, our, our athletic program was first of all right. graduation. Now forget about the, forget about the kids. Mm-hmm. Didn't those coaches want to get into the NFL? You know, as a coach, didn't they want to, didn't they want to go up there? I would have thought so. You know, I, I think yeah. that they would have gone up there, but I also know by the time that I got there, they were all in their 60s, 50s and 60s. So their time was passing them their by. Their time right? was passing, and they were having so much positive impact on young men. Yeah, yeah. You didn't go to that. You didn't play on that team unless you got your degree. Yeah, yeah. And that was something at that, you know, in the 70s, that was a pretty important thing for, for African-American families. All right, let's, we're going to pause it here. We'll edit it back into this. You know, we'll, let's, let's do that. All right, Adam, come on in. Um, we're we're going to just take a pause in the activity. We'll... You're going to have to come up with some magic editing. Hello, gentlemen. Hey, Paul. Paul, you're going to sit right here, Paul, and meet Larry Mallory. Hey, Paul. How are you? Paul. Nice to meet you. There's Jack. Oh, you're an observer. How are you doing? Hey, man. Just sit down there. Larry, grab grab your... Oh, yeah. So let Paul sit down. All right. Joining Larry and I today is Paul Hendricks, and Paul is a former Vietnam veteran. That's right. And uh, Larry and I were talking earlier in the program about John McCain. When you were in Vietnam, were you aware of what the POWs were going through? 
That's a good question. Uh, now, let me just kind of retrench this a little bit. So my experience in Vietnam was in B-52s when, when we flew out of Guam in Thailand. So uh, a little bit different uh, story than some of the guys who were in country. We were in country a lot, but we were, you know, 30,000 feet. Mm -hmm. So we definitely knew the plight of uh, the POWs. As a matter of fact, the missions that I flew, we flew a lot of South Vietnam missions, but the missions I flew in North Vietnam were specifically to, to end the war in Vietnam, and we were, uh, uh, I, I think we could, uh, we could say we were under the President's direction uh, to hit targets to bring the uh, North Vietnamese leaders to the table. And the idea there was obviously to stop this war and let our prisoners go, but that we were all, I was in college at the time, you could see these guys uh, you know, just being paraded through the streets and, and having really bad stories. And, so when I got into the Air Force, that was definitely something that uh, you know I was thinking about. Am I going to get in that area? And of course, I did at the end of Vietnam there. Uh, December of 1972, uh, I flew four what they call downtown missions across Hanoi, very much in mind that we were bombing, bombing to end the war. And it did end the war. We were one of the major elements. And uh, ending that war and releasing our prisoners was just a huge huge uh, uh, initiative and big effort for us and yeah. we're very proud to make that happen and be part of that crew of all the hundreds of bombers that flew. I was proud to be able to be part of that. Well, Larry and I were talking uh, earlier today how um, um, our kids and our grandkids, they hear the term now, all of a sudden they're hearing about the Hanoi Hilton. Yes. But in their mind, we're afraid that they're thinking they're staying in a posh luxury hotel. hotel right? <laughs> you know, they don't know what what the story behind the Hanoi Hilton was. You know, for all the POWs. So, can you kind of give them a little history lesson? Sure. So, the Hanoi Hilton uh, got its name uh, just because of the where uh, our prisoners of war were warehouse in uh, Hanoi, and it was really a, 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 a leftover or. or what I'm looking for, um, something left over from the, the French. As, uh, you know, the French uh, dominated Vietnam for a long time before uh, uh, the Americans got involved in, in the uh, Vietnam War. And that was an, an actual uh, area where the French used to um, uh, hold Vietnamese prisoners and that sort of thing. So it was not a uh, hotel. It was a uh, 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 barricade, if you will, a barracks where uh, these prisoners were actually warehoused in, in little tiny cells, uh, very barbaric conditions, no light in some cases, certainly no air conditioning or heating because it just wasn't there. I'm not even sure if they had light at the time. And uh, very bar barbarian type activities uh, were taking place there, lots of torture. Um, I'm a uh, very good uh, acquaintance of uh, Congressman uh, Sam Johnson and now uh, uh, Senator McCain, of course, we've talked about a lot, and there's a couple other Vietnamese or Vietnam uh, POWs in the area, and they're all disfigured, every one of them. If you look at uh, uh, Congressman Johnson, uh, I mean, his hands are just just beat to pieces. He can't hold a fork in his hand. He has to pick things up with one hand and put it in his other, and uh, sort of mm. like a robot eating. Mm -hmm. Just a lot of torture, and you wonder why. You just wonder why. Uh, to what end did that have on? Uh, making uh, the war any better or any worse for anybody. Uh, I don't think it really had a bearing. But this is where these um, uh, prisoners of wars were warehoused uh, for years on end. I think uh, 
Senator McCain was there for five and a half years. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Congressman Johnson was there for six or, or more years. And you know, to what end is that? Uh, I mean, we want to have our prisoners of wars released. Uh, we're trying to fight a war that has, that has some sort of humanity to it. And uh, prisoners of war just really doesn't make as much sense to me. I mean, they're not much of a bargaining chip. Do you guys give any thought at all? Does it bother you? Are you happy about it? Vietnam is now a tourist area. You know, Americans go there for vacation. How, how, is that, uh, how does that work for you guys? Well, um, you know, I guess there, things change. And when we have a war, uh, we're not, our goal is not to go in and just destroy everything, wipe out every living entity in the area. Our goal is to try to achieve uh, military political objective and have that objective uh, resolved and hopefully uh, go back and rebuild and, and get peace going. I have not been back to Vietnam. I think I would like to go now that I mm -hmm. see things are um, The health is a little nicer now. Uh, yeah, and I, you know, <laughs> I cannot believe that there was one piece of glass left in Vietnam. We bombed the holy heck out of, of Hanoi. But going back there, I've, I've talked to several people. Uh, actually, what's impressive to me is I know quite a few uh, what's called boat people, people that uh, in the uh, 1975 escaped as the North Vietnamese had penetrated into South Vietnam, and they did not want to live in that uh, communist environment. So they actually, uh, some of them were on boats, some of them were on helicoptered out, and uh, some of them were uh, very young. Right. And now they're in leadership positions, they, they go back to see what happened. And uh, it, it's really interesting to get their perspective. Mm. We have a very uh, interesting story with the NFL's Players Association. Uh, uh, Larry has a lady working uh, for him there, Christine Waller. Mm -hmm. uh, Christina Wall, uh, Christine Waller. And um, Christine was adopted by an American soldier. And we, we've taped her for the website, and it's a very interesting story. Because this American uh, veteran, when he was in Vietnam, wanted to adopt her, and he got injured and was sent home without her. But he came back mm -hmm. and got her after the war. And, uh, you know, he and his wife, you know, raised her. And uh, it was just an interesting story. And she talked about how she believes her parents had to give her up just to save her. Mm. And they tried to escape, and she has no idea who they were, what they wow. were, no birth certificates. You know, so there's a lot of interesting stories, mm -hmm. you know, here now from uh, uh, from uh, from that. Christine's been very successful here and very helpful uh, to the NFL. She has, she you, has. You know, um, you know the, the the normal conditions were just so challenging. I think John McCain actually went into solitary confinement. That had to, I mean, that had to be even much, much worse. If the normal conditions are like that, solitary confinement had to be. Well, you know, you're hoping people are watching the uh, uh, the news shows because they're showing the conditions that he stayed in, and you can't you can't really fathom it. You know, when kids today, it's like um, I always tell a story when I when I do public speaking, I tell a story about a good friend of mine whose parents were Holocaust survivors. And I tell this remarkable story of a reunion his mom had with this other lady 40 years earlier. Now, I knew this woman because I knew her son, and I grew up with him. I'd known him since kindergarten. But when you're a kid, the story meant nothing. Mm -hmm. You'll be, oh, my gosh, your parents have a real heavy accent. That must have been terrible. What time is dinner? <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Yeah. But when we get older, these things start to get important. You know, It's like even the... Uh, um, 
Vietnam, the way not to go to Vietnam was to be in college. It was a very different time. And I remember guys that went to Nam and then would come to school afterwards and they're coming to school without a limb. And it's like, you know, it was just awful. And it was just an awful time in the country. And you guys went through hell in this country for many years. It's just finally now we're finally understanding that you're always on our side and you're always doing what you were supposed to do. That's right. You, you know, you know uh, uh, you're young guys given a job to do and you went out and performed it. It's, you know, did that bother you back then? Well, you know, that's, that's a good question. Um, I guess everybody's a little different. Uh, when I entered the Air Force, I, I knew that I was under control of somebody, you know, a commanding officer, and uh, my job was to do what he told me to do. Right. Just as simple as that. Now, um, when I was in college, uh, we, we would see riots and demonstrations and that sort of thing, and I was just a college student. I, I, I wasn't uh, for or against any of that. I was just trying to get my college degree to right. go on. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, uh, when I went in, as it should have been. Well, yeah, and so my goal was to get a degree and going to life. work and and do this. And I hadn't planned on you know, being in the military. That wasn't necessarily my plan. And um, uh, due to the draft and the lottery system, I was able to uh, go in the military and learn discipline and that sort of thing and, and chain of command. But uh, doing the job that I was told to do uh, was uh, easy to do. And I think uh, I only saw one incident. Uh, of a, a time when there was a uh, someone uh, protested while they were on active duty and said they weren't going to do it, and that was uh, that was a scary situation. I mean, not scary; it was just traumatic. Because how mm -hmm. could you? Right. Just I mean, right. how could you mm -hmm. uh, not do what your country wanted you to do? And this guy uh, had been a uh, uh, co-pilot. Uh, he was a, a new pilot that was going to join us on our crew. And uh, we bring him on a bombing mission. This was a, uh, a South Vietnam mission, so uh, wasn't going to get shot at least. Uh, anything's going to be a threat to us. He came out to the airplane, got his orientation because he'd been through. We taxpayers had paid for uh, uh, two, two and a half years of, of training for this individual. And uh, we went to load the airplane up, and he said, I'm not going. What do you mean, not going? Well, I'm not going. I, I, I can't do this. How can you go through all the training, all of the everything you've done? This was his first mission. How could you not go? So I, I, I just can't do this. I see it's my internal feelings. So we said, well, okay. So we called the command post. They came out and arrested him and hauled him away. Because uh, it, it just made me think that you know everybody has has different opinions, and uh, I don't want to say we are blind. To just having the leadership, but when you're ready to, to do your job, you just have to go forward. And this guy uh, ended up uh, going to the Philippines for trial and that sort of thing, and I don't know what happened to him after that, but his goal of doing the job for the United States Air Force was to fly training missions. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, you can do that, but uh, uh, that's certainly not doing your job. You're, when you go in, you know you're, you're in charge of doing combat. Yeah. And yeah. so that was just shocking to me. But otherwise, uh, I didn't have a problem doing my job, and the guys I flew with, uh, we were all into uh, doing our job and surviving and coming home and being with our families. And at the end, obviously, uh, the welcome home wasn't quite as warm as it could have been. 
Should have been. I think the welcome home was good in the fact that as far as we were concerned, that war was over. And we had accomplished the objective, that right. was to get to the end state. Right, right, right. The Veterans Center of North Texas. Tell so, us about that. So the Veterans Center of North Texas, uh, we think, is, is, is fairly unique. Uh, we are, we, we got our uh, incorporation, 501c3, on June 27, 2014. So we were working hard up to that point to get the accreditation. Uh, certified by the state as well as the federal government as a nonprofit organization. And our business model is, is pretty much unique compared to a lot of the other organizations. There's a lot of wonderful, great veterans organizations in our communities in, in Texas. Texas is a, certainly a benevolent state for uh, supporting our veterans. Our model is, is a little, little unique in the fact that um, we have 24 volunteers. We are all volunteer, unpaid organization. So, um, our uh, model has us doing counseling, a tremendous amount of social work, which we hadn't planned on doing, it's just the way it mm -hmm. came out, uh, trying to understand what veteran issues are, uh, and then find out what the root cause of those issues are. So we're constantly working to try to find out why is there an issue? Why does a veteran need support? Why do their uh, families uh, need help to go forward? I mean, they're American citizens like the rest of us. What's going on here? So we're constantly working towards that root cause with the goal to work on the root cause and try to uh, reduce or eliminate the cause of the, the problem. So uh, we'll do that while we're providing uh, social work and uh, immediate need initiatives to get them going. And we satisfy the immediate need issues through our uh, vast uh, uh, network of service providers. We have That's over 200 service providers we work with, some at the federal level, the VA for example, uh, state level, state has a tremendous amount of uh, support opportunities for our veterans and then the county and the uh, community. The community is just full of, of just great service agencies, which I had no idea ever existed. Yeah. And so our goal is to identify the root cause, work on the, the immediate needs, uh, and let our community through our vetting process and hand-holding process support our veterans. How do they reach you? Phone number. Okay, so our office phone number is 214-600-2966. Website? Website, www.vcont, Victor Charlie Oscar November Tango dot org. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us today. Wonderful. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity yeah. here. Great. All right. And then we're going to have to pick up, and I forgot where the hell my train of thought was. But that was very good. Right. You know, you did good. Please, please give me Let me get this business card right. for Yeah, very interesting, though. I had an observation. All right, I want to change topics with you for a minute. We taped our first uh, The Extra Point starring Larry Mallory the other day. It's up on the website. Uh, um, uh, we're going to be giving away a signed football at the end of the season. You're getting everybody to sign the football. But... Byron Williams, who's also a close friend of yours, mm -hmm. had a line that we're going to be using over and over and over. Mm -hmm. It was the greatest thing that somebody has ever said on that show. I thought I was going to bust the gut uh -huh. when he said it. Uh, and I loved, and he said it to Lifford. And Lifford was trying to talk about how they made him play center and this and that. And Byron just sitting back there, it's because you got a big head. <laughs> quietly. And Lifford is trying to, to save himself and going, no, 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 I have these real long arms and I got these real big hands. And, and Byron goes, no, everybody with a big head plays center. That's right. I, 
<laughs> it was great. So, you know, it was great. So how did that first show go for you? It feel good? I thought it was excellent, honestly. And I think that I think that uh, Generations Broadcast Center now is they're, they're helping me develop the type of shows that not only is funny, not only is entertaining to our beautiful audience at the centers that we have it, but it's also informative. Right. And, it's, right. and it tells guys, military or profe- I mean, uh, football guys, it tells them about the resources, the benefits, and the opportunities that are there for their families. And then above all, it highlights what, you know, the positive aspects right, that they're right. doing in the community. So that, that is the important thing. All right. So until next time, I just a uh, couple of reminders to everybody. Uh, if you're watching on the website, always know to go to gbctv.net, which is short for the long way of going to the website, which is generationsbroadcastcenter.com. Or you can watch us on YouTube on the Generations uh, um, YouTube channel. And if you don't need to see these two young, good-looking studs, you can listen to us on iTunes and on Stitcher, of course. He's Larry Mallory. I'm Scott Farber. Be sure to watch the Extra Point uh, television show starring Larry Mallory, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, I'm everyone. Best, I'm the best. All right, man, take care. Best. All right, man, take care. Best. All right, man, take care. Best. All right, man, take care.